morning again, church family. So very thankful. Uh, I'm so thankful uh, that Raymond and Abigail uh, are leading our music this morning. They've done a wonderful job, and we're thankful to have them. We all put your hands together for them. They uh, very kindly stepped in at the last minute this week uh, and did a wonderful job, and, and we're so thankful for them. And so, guys, if you have your Bibles open to uh, the Gospel of Luke, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, first in the summer and then kind of carrying over into the fall. And so this morning we will be in Luke 14. Uh, Luke chapter 14 is, so we make our way through uh, Luke. We come to a very similar encounter as we looked at last week uh, with the healing of the crippled woman and the synagogue on the Sabbath. You remember that? Jesus went into the, the synagogue and there was a, a lady that was bent over and called her to himself and, and healed her. And set her free, and of course, uh, the Jewish leaders were not overly pleased with this display of healing on the Sabbath. And so, again, we kind of come to a very similar encounter. The setting has changed. Uh, this is not in a synagogue. This is in a Pharisee's house. Uh, kind of the lead-up has changed. Jesus is not simply going about his ministry. Uh, he's been invited here, and I think that if we, we see the religious leaders are trying to set him up, but the pattern is the same. Jesus restores uh, people who are broken on the Sabbath. And so we, we kind of come to this story in Luke 14. But the narrative moves pretty quickly um, after this brief encounter to dealing with a, a much deeper issue. I think it's even the issue that led the Pharisees to try to set Jesus up in the first place. It's the issue of pride. Uh, the, the Pharisees were prideful, and Jesus had come on the scene and was embarrassing them and, and calling them out, and, and they were prideful, and they wanted to get rid of him. And so Jesus, in this after healing this person, observing the behavior of the guest, he tells a parable. And then he gives this kingdom principle concerning pride. And so it's that parable and that principle uh, I want to spend our time together this morning examining under the title of exposing pride. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, how Jesus exposed pride. So we find the context of this in verse 1 of chapter 14. Uh, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And so we see that, that Jesus is invited to this Pharisee's house for dinner on, on a Sabbath after the worship, uh, after the, the, the temple or the synagogue service. And so it says, but they're watching him. And so th there's kind of an ulterior motive here. Uh, they didn't just invite Jesus to be kind. They know what Jesus does. Uh, he likes to break their rules. And they know that he cannot resist healing on the Sabbath. We've already seen this over and over again in Luke. If he encounters someone uh, on the Sabbath that needs to be healed, he will Heal them. And so Jesus, we'll see, uh, kind of comes into this setup. I think he sees right through it. The Bible says there's a man there, uh, just happens to be there with this debilitating disease. Uh, the Bible names it as, as dropsy, which is uh, it's, it's basically a swelling of the body caused from retention of water. It can be painful and limiting to movement and quality of life. And so Jesus sees through their setup, right? And he asks this provocative question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They can't answer because they've said, if they say it is not lawful, then they're going to seem very insensitive to this person's condition. But if they say it's okay, then they're going to violate their own standards that they'd added to the law. And so they're kind of just stuck. And so they don't say anything. And so Jesus calls a man to himself, heals him, sends him on his way, and then reveals the hypocrisy of the religious elite. He says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And so Jesus kind of turns it on his head, this setup, 
catches them in their hypocrisy, and then dinner starts. Can you imagine the, the awkward tension of this dinner, right? Jesus calls out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then it's time to sit down at the table. And so that's kind of the background to this parable, which I think is, is, is wonderful to remember that as people kind of get over the shock of this uh, confrontation, uh, as I imagine the Pharisees are a little bit upset that he's coming to their home and embarrassed them so, and then maybe they're hoping to get past the uncomfortableness of the moment, they call for dinner, right? Like, it's like, hey, let's just move this thing on. Let's get this going. And Jesus, uh, standing there, is watching what is happening. And I, this, this is from the Reformed Expository Commentary. It says, uh, let's not forget this was a major social event. This was a dinner party hosted by a very important man in the town. Uh, Jesus, a well-known public figure, had come in attendance and in this day, the table will be arranged most likely in a U-shaped formation with the host sitting at the center and the guests sitting on cushions or low couches on either side. The best places were the ones on the right and the left of the host. And then after that, the best place was to sit as close to the host as one could get. That would show your status. And so as Jesus watched these men who claimed to be righteous, God-fearing men who had just come from their Sabbath worship, as he watched them vie for positions and places of honor, he saw them for what they were, selfish, prideful men. So he watches this from a distance, and then he is going to see what they really are, and then he's going to expose them. And Kent Hughes says, The Pharisees and scribes, despite all their God talk and religious posturing, were a selfish, self-seeking, ambitious lot. The problem with selfishness is it always reduces the importance of others and enlarges the importance of one's own life. Now, likely many of us have been in similar situations, right? Where we've seen men and women, even children, vie for the best position, right? The best seat, first in line, the best deal, right? Like, we've seen this in our own lives. I was reminded of a trip my family took this past Christmas uh, to Disneyland. And so... Disneyland is a place that's got all kinds of wonderful attractions, and people are always trying to get in line and figure out how to get further, but it never really hit me how much people were willing to do to get in the front until it came to fireworks. I don't know how many of y'all have been to Disneyland, but at night, they do wonderful fireworks. We didn't know about it the first night. We missed it because we're not Disneyland people. We didn't know. So we heard about it the second day, and we're like, okay, we're going to stay in the park late enough to watch this. It's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, and But we had like two hours to kill. So we were just kind of hanging around and we kind of got out of our spot, got some food, hanging out. And then as it began to get closer and closer, they, they rope it off. Like it gets really serious. Like everybody that's been there, they rope it off. They start moving people through. You can't stop. And as it got closer and closer, the amount of people that were trying to maneuver their way into the ropes or into the front seat or they would try to stop and, oh, I'm just tying my shoes, right? Like in the security guards were constantly ushering people through because... Uh, but all these people were vying for the best position because, listen, they deserve it, right? They are the most important person there, and they need the best seat, right? And uh, we watched this happen for, for an hour of people just kind of vying. And then even after it started, people were trying to kind of push their way in or, or stand right next to the rope. Maybe nobody would see them, you know. This was, but it was this vying of position. And look, it's the same thing. We've seen it over and over in life. It's the guy that when the plane lands— and the stewardess says, you know, remain seated. He's the first one up to grab his luggage to get to the front because he wants to be off first because his business is most important, right? He's got to get first off the plane. It's the person that waits for the last moment to merge over because where they're going is the most important place, right? These are examples of vying for the best place and the best position. We, we see this all the time. 
it's this posturing, this positioning, because I am important, and therefore I deserve the best seat or the best place or to be first, as it were, in the situation. Again, returning to this wonderful commentary, he says, As Jesus watched the guests gather for dinner, he noticed the subtle and not-so-subtle ways they inched their way closer to the best seats in the house. It's easy to imagine the scene, one man engaging the host in close conversation so as to be right next to him when the call came for dinner. Another man walking to the head of the table or casually placing his hand on the low sofa where the host would sit with his most honored guests. They all wanted the best seat in the house. They did it so smoothly that some people couldn't see what they were doing. But as Jesus watched them make their moves, he saw what they were really doing. He knew behind their seeming indifference lurked a selfish intention. This close conversation was a social maneuver. The casual hand on the sofa was a calculated grasp for public recognition. And it was all of this observation that caused Jesus to now address the totality of the dinner party. He gets everybody's attention. He says, listen, and he tells our parable, and we'll find that in verse 7. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in 7 and read through 11. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have a copy of God's Word. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move on up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has addressed this issue with the Pharisees. If you go back just in the book of Luke, in uh, chapter 11, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. Jesus reserved his strongest rebukes. For those whose lives were filled with pride. As he made his way through the, the Jerusalem and the surrounding areas during his ministry, the, the strongest rebukes, the strongest uh, comments that came from him were to those who were filled with pride. And so here in this parable, Jesus is going to expose the underlying issue of all this maneuvering for the best seats. It is pride. And so he's going to lay open the root of pride. Uh, or we're going to say the root of pride revealed if you're taking notes. Jesus is going to expose what's really happening here is that there's a pride issue. All of this maneuvering and seat choosing came down to one core heart issue, pride. The desire to elevate oneself so that everyone can see and acknowledge your specialness or your uniqueness or your whatever-ness you want people to notice. As I studied for this, I was amazed just reminded rather how often the Bible addresses the sin of pride if you have a a concordance or commentary sometime just look up pride and see how long and how often the Bible addresses all of Proverbs from Proverbs 3 all the way uh, every three or four Proverbs pride comes up again Jesus talked about it many times and almost every writer that contributed to the canon of New Testament mentions pride Peter, James, John, they, they all, Paul, they all mention pride. Not only is it explicitly warned against, it's even listed as one of the things God hates. Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. The first is 
haughty eyes, which are elevated eyes, proud eyes. The first thing Proverbs says that God hates is pride. And not only is it warned against, we find the devastating effects of it throughout Scripture. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve's problem was pride. They elevated themselves to be above the instruction they got from God. And the result of that elevation was they were cast out of the garden, spiritually separated from God. Cain was exiled because he killed Abel. Why did he kill Abel? Because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his own, and his pride could not handle that. It goes on, Moses, in a moment of pride, exalted himself and struck the rock. And took the place of God and the glory of God. And God said, you will now not enter my promised land. David exalted himself to take what he wanted with Bathsheba and resulted in grief and pain throughout the remainder of his life. Nebuchadnezzar exalted his importance as he looked over his kingdom and God drove him mad for a season. He wandered the ground and like an animal, the Bible says. Lest we forget Peter. Exalting himself at dinner, saying, I would never abandon you for forsake you. I would never deny you. And then within a few hours, he was humbled by a servant girl at a fire, saying, I never knew that man. The Bible warns over and over again that if we exalt ourselves, we will find ourselves humbled. When, when asked what is the greatest sin, what sin is worse than any other, C.S. Lewis responded on a radio segment that later became what we know as mere Christianity, he said this, there is one vice of which in the world no man is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. We'll return to Lewis's dealing with humility and pride a few times throughout this because he deals with it so thoroughly and beautifully. But therein lies the problem for us today. The world does not view pride as a vice, but as a virtue, right? We're encouraged to be proud, to look out for number one, to get what we deserve, to be first, to climb a ladder, to make our way to the front. Listen, there is nothing more dangerous than a Christian to accept that and cultivate this heart of pride. We buy the lie and we cultivate a prideful heart, which is the root of so much of the sin in our world and in our very own lives. It's because we've allowed a root of pride to take root. This is a serious matter and we would do well to take seriously what Jesus teaches here. Pride is not just a problem, it is the problem that we need to address. And so Jesus says, in this parable, he's really dealing with, uh, Brittany read this morning, Proverbs 25, 6-7. And Jesus is really encapturing the, the wisdom of this proverb. He says, the proverb says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. And Jesus is kind of telling that, parab that proverb as a parable, kind of encapturing that wisdom. And so, in his parable, there's a man that arrives at a dinner party. 
he surveys the scene and having compared himself to the others that have been invited decides that he should be at the place of honor so he goes and sits at the place right because that's the only way you take that place you decide that you're the best one in the room right you look around at the other guests you look at the guest list you say okay I'm the one that needs to be at that place and so he goes and he seats at this place the place of importance and he thoroughly enjoys all of the jealous eyes that are suddenly on him, not knowing that he was that important, that he was the honored guest, and now he's sitting there, and everyone will know he's important. And just then, the host comes in and comes up to the man, and surely the man is hoping to be greeted in a manner worthy of his place, and instead, he is asked to give up his seat for someone more important. And now, with the table being full, there's only one place left, the lowest seat where no one wanted to sit. So the man moves from the head of the table to the lowest table in front of everyone. And, and can you imagine, can you feel that secondhand embarrassment for this man, the shame that he now has to go in front of everyone to the lowest seat and sit down because no one else is going to move for him. And so he finds himself at the lowest seat. He just knew he was in the right seat, right? He just knew that he deserved to be in the place of honor. He just knew that that was where he needed to be. And listen, this is how many of us live our lives. Trying to attain social status equal to what we think we deserve, right? The corner office that ought to be ours, the impressive title, the car, the clothes, the paycheck. We are trying to get to the thing that finally says, this is what I deserve. Jesus says the root of all of this maneuvering and posturing is a prideful heart. Someone who exalts themselves. Now, surely we can all agree to have been guilty of this in some subtle and not so subtle way from time to time. I know that I have not conquered pride. The problem is when this becomes the posture of the heart, the pattern of the life, when we let pride run rampant and what people think of us, how people see us become the driving force in our life. This is when we have a problem, a root that is taken old that we have to deal with. C.S. Lewis again in that letter says, actually worse than being driven by what people think is to become so self-important in your eyes that you no longer care what people think because your opinion is so full of yourself you don't have any space. Pride doesn't always have to have the opinion of others. Sometimes we can be so prideful of ourselves that it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. And so Jesus is warning us that there is a root of pride in all of this maneuvering and prideful heart. And listen, the warning here is that when we exalt ourselves, we are exposing that we have a pride issue. The next thing we see Jesus showing us is the foolishness of pride explained. So Jesus tells this parable not just to, to open the eyes and expose the pride behind what they were doing, but further to illustrate the foolishness of it all. All the maneuvering, all the, the pride behind it is foolish. And listen, if your self-identity is wrapped up in comparing yourself to others, being better than someone else, having more than someone else, there will always be, listen, there will always be someone more important, smarter, richer, better looking, more distinguished, more educated than you somewhere. There will always be someone. And listen, since you never know when you're going to encounter that person, your elevated sense of self will always be in danger. You don't know what party they're going to show up, what dinner they're going to come to, and you will find yourself moved from the seat of honor because you weren't as important as you thought you were if you live very long you know this to be true right 
But let's for a minute pretend. Let's pretend that you are the wisest, smartest, richest, most attractive, important person in the world. All that matters very little when you stand before the creator of the universe. You could be the most intelligent, the, 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 the wisest, the most beautiful, the most rich. Everything you could touch could be turned to gold. And listen, when you stand before the creator of the universe, this is what Lewis goes on to say in that talk. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Doesn't matter how you compare yourself to others. There's going to come a day that you stand before your maker, your creator, the, the Lord of lords and king of kings. And in that day, it will matter what he says about you, not what you say about yourself. The Bible says it is appointed for man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. Listen, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. You can spend your life occupying every seat of honor you can find to fill. And in the end, you will come before the only seat that matters. And you will find that it is already occupied by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is not your seat and you cannot have it, right? So you can have every seat of honor all the way up to that point, And it won't matter because there's only one seat that matters and it's already filled. Pride is foolish because the outcome of pride is to be humbled. You can have men and women praise you. You can have them wish they were you. And in the end, the only opinion that matters is whether or not Jesus knows you as his own or not. So Jesus says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. That's the principle that he gives in this parable. And it's not the first time or the last time, rather, He'll use this principle. In Luke 18, uh, 9, he uses this principle again in another parable. I think it's beneficial for us to understand that Jesus applies this farther than just a dinner party. In Luke 18, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And pause it. Do you hear it? Those that were prideful, right? Those that thought they were good and they treated others with contempt. The parable is this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus, in this parable about choosing a seat, the humility, the humbleness, is simply being embarrassed at a dinner party. In the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, being humbled is realizing you wasted your life inflating your sense of self only to find that you are poor, wretched, miserable sinner that is alienated from God and finds nothing but condemnation in his presence. All of your posturing, all of your, your self-statements, all of your inflating ego means nothing before God. 
It's foolishness. So what is the answer? If we elevate ourselves, we will be humbled. Jesus says the answer is those who humble themselves will be exalted. He gives this inverse principle in the kingdom. The next thing we see is the antidote of pride disclosed. Jesus gives us a better way. After he exposes the pride, after he really helps us understand the foolishness of it, he gives us a better way. He says, take the lowest place and let someone else decide that you need to move on up higher. Let someone else decide to honor you. In this parable, Jesus says, it's much better to take the lowest seat. And if someone asks you to move up, great. If not, great. Because where you sit is not important. Right? You need not be propped up by praise because you do not desire it. You don't need it. And it's important for us to know that Jesus is not advocating a false humility that takes a lower seat in order to be asked to move up. Jesus always condemned false piety and humility. The motive for taking the lowest seat is not to advance, but because rather than being proud, you are humble. The lowest seat is fine because you know yourself. You know what you deserve and what you don't deserve, and what most of us deserve is nothing. I shared this quote on Wednesday night as we were praying. I said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Right? It's not groveling about who you are. It's just stop thinking about yourself. Right? That's the the core of, of humility. And that quote comes from Lewis. And here's the greater context. Do not imagine that if you met a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble anyways nowadays. He will not be the sort of... He says, greasy, swarmy person is always telling you that he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him at all because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's what humility looks like. Just think, having a right estimation of yourself and then forgetting yourself. Humility is having a right estimation of yourself, an estimation rooted not in how we feel or what the world says about us, but what the word of God says about us. That we are sinful, fallen human beings that at our very best, apart from God, our works are like filthy rags in God's eyes. Apart from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that we are desperately sinful, wicked, self-centered individuals destined for eternal damnation. That is a message opposite of anything the world teaches. That's what the scripture says, apart from God, that listen, and furthermore, that every good thing in us after salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit and a gift from God. We have nothing to boast about. Nothing to be prideful about. As a matter of fact, unless we come to that place of humility, Jesus said, even enter the kingdom of God. Because we can only be saved when we realize there's nothing in us worth saving. We can only be saved when we realize there's nothing we can do to be saved. The only thing left is to throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of a God who loved us in spite of ourselves enough to pay the price for our sins. The real question then for us is how can someone who has come to that place of humility before God and cried out to God ever turn around and live a prideful life? How can someone who has really humbled themselves for the Lord Jesus ever be prideful? 
quote Lewis one more time. He says this, I'm afraid it means they're worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but they're really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks they're far better than the ordinary people around him. That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow men. They're willing to say in front of theoretical God that they're nothing, but then they go and live in his creation as though they are everything that they deserved salvation, that they earned it, that Jesus came to die because they were so important and so worthy of salvation. Lewis says they're not worshiping God. They're worshiping a God of their imagination. So here we are, friends, faced with this unavoidable reality that Jesus stated so clearly, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we have to ask ourselves now in this moment, do I find the position of my heart to be one of exalting myself or humbling myself? Is my understanding of myself that I'm a wretched sinner in need of saving or someone who deserves praise? It cannot be both. Either I'm undeserving and I need salvation or I'm worthy of praise. But listen, friends, it can't be both. Pride is something we all battle from time to time. At least in my limited experience, I have not been fully able to conquer it. It creeps in when I least expect it. And I suspect that it's the same for some of you too. But listen, I worry that for some, pride is not a battle. It's simply a way of life. It's who you are. And listen, no life of pride will ever end in anything but devastation. It's foolishness. My prayer is that God would reveal the hidden pride in our lives, that he would expose the foolishness of it and help us live in humility before him. As we close, I, I want everyone to, to bow their head and close their eye for just a minute. I, I want to speak to you just one last time from God's word. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore, because Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, every single one. The only difference is that some will do it this side of heaven in humility, acknowledging that they are nothing before him and throwing themselves on his mercy. And they, the Bible says, will be raised in the last day and exalted to be with God forever. And then there are those who refuse to bow and refuse to confess this side of heaven and their last act before being sent out of God's presence into an eternal damnation will be to acknowledge that their pride was misplaced, that indeed there is none greater than Jesus and all their self-exaltation was a horrible mistake. They will, to use Jesus' language, be told to move from the seat they've placed themselves in. Jesus will say, I never knew you. 
Or he will say, come inherit the kingdom of heaven prepared for you. And the only difference is, have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Or are you standing in a prideful position? What started as such a simple lesson at a dinner, Jesus in a moment in our scripture brings up this resurrection of the just. And he shows us that he's talking so much more than just our social standing or where we sit at a dinner or social embarrassment. He's talking about everlasting life. So here's my challenge for you. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing and we're going to worship for a few moments. And and this time is for response. Brittany, I'll be at the front, off to the side. If you want to know more about what it looks like to humble yourself before God, or maybe you know You've been in church long enough, but you know you've never done it. Then during this time of of, of worship and praise, just where you are, just acknowledge that you don't bring anything worth of pride before God, that you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You're a hopelessly broken, lost human being, and the only hope of your salvation is that God would act. And if if you do that, We'd love to talk to you, to equip you, to resource you. Or maybe you just need prayer. You say, Pastor, I, I know Jesus. I've humbled myself, but I've let pride creep in and take root. Why don't you pray for me? We'd love to do that. I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then we're all going to stand.